Does the word Trojan have a welcome ring to it? Would you love to attend law school as a Trojan? You've come to the right podcast. Today's guest is the Associate Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at USC Gold School of Law. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Acceptance founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Thanks for joining me for the 456th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Are you applying to law school this cycle? Are you planning ahead to apply to law school next year or later? Are you competitive at your target programs? Accepted's Law School Admissions Quiz can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash law dash quiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but tips on how to improve your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, Take the short quiz at accepted.com slash law dash quiz to obtain your free assessment. Now for today's interview, I'm delighted to have on Admission Straight Talk, David Kirshner, Associate Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at USC Gold School of Law. Dean Kirshner earned his undergrad degree at USC in political science, like me, and film production, though I didn't get mine from USC. He then earned his JD at California Western School of Law. He has been in law school admissions since 2006, when he joined Loyola Law as Associate Dean of Admissions. In 2011, he became Director of Admissions at USC Gould, and in 2016, he became USC Gould's Associate Dean and Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid. Dean Kirshner, thank you so much for joining me on Admission Straight Talk. Thank you, Linda. Happy to be here with you today. Okay, great. Can you give us an overview of the more distinctive elements of the USC Gould's JD program? Yeah, certainly. So um, I think one of the distinctive elements that certainly differentiates us a little bit from uh, from some of our peer schools is is our small size. You know, at beneath 200 students, at least that's our goal each year, um, is to bring in a first-year class of no more than 200 students. It lends itself to a very collegial and collaborative learning environment where students not only get to know their faculty members well, but they get to know one another um, very well uh, and support one another. Um, So I think that small size uh, is is a great facet of a Gould education. Um, And I like to say small size does not mean small opportunity, right? As a relatively small law school, we're set in the heart of a major top tier research university that sits at the heart of kind of the de facto and default capital of the Pacific Rim, which is Los Angeles. So there's no shortage of opportunity. There's no shortage of individuals to learn from. Not only do we have a great full-time tenured faculty, but we're also able to draw from a pool of incredibly talented practitioners in Los Angeles who serve as adjunct faculty and teach some of the more niche style upper division courses, um, right? So Students not only have the ability to learn from experts in their fields who publish and research and present, but then also learn particular areas from practitioners who are doing things every day. So I really think it's that combination of a small class size, a collegial and collaborative environment with all of the resources that a university like USC offer, um, as well as a world-class city like Los Angeles. 
in preparing for the call, I saw that I think the first year is a very much standard curriculum and the second two years are entirely elective, right? Yeah, I mean, that is, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's quite, pretty- that, yeah, that's quite accurate. Um, in the second and third year, there are uh, a few requirements. There's an upper division writing requirement, okay. and there are certainly classes where the material is tested frequently on the bar that students choose right. to take. Yeah, but those bar classes are not required classes. Right, it seemed like there was a lot of flexibility in the there program. Tremendous, tremendous flexibility in the upper division. Right. Now, COVID has affected everything. We're in the middle right now of the Omicron surge. How has it affected the curriculum experience at USC Law? And what do you think is going to stick? Yeah, no, it certainly has. I am doing this interview with you from the comfort of my home today. Um, and, and you know, so it, it has impacted things in, in, so, in so many ways. I think one of the lasting impacts will be flexibility, right? So I don't necessarily see um, any significant short-term impacts on curriculum. You know, as, as you probably know, and as some listeners may know, uh, legal education um, has looked remarkably similar for uh, for quite a long time. Of course, there's been the advent of clinical learning and, and hands-on learning in recent decades, you know, but by and large, Black letter law courses are always going to be taught in the first year, right? Black letter law meaning contracts and torts and criminal law and civil procedure, right? And there will be a wide variety of electives in in the upper division years. So I don't necessarily think COVID in the short term is going to change what the curriculum looks like, but, but I do think law schools have been forced to be nimble and flexible in how they deliver education and both co-curricular and extracurricular opportunities to students. And, and so I think that will be one of the, you know, it, it, it's, you know, not easy to say that COVID will have some lasting positive impacts, but um, certainly it has forced law schools to be much more nimble than we're accustomed to. I think it's forced everything to be much more nimble and accustomed to. Um, but certainly when, you know, in, in uh, talking to other professional programs, one of the silver linings, if you will, of COVID has been that schools discovered they could bring in speakers without bringing in speakers. You know, they could just zoom them in and that that was was one benefit. I don't know if the law school has taken advantage of that also, I assume so. Yeah, no, we we certainly have. It it has um, given the opportunity to bring together a a series of speakers who may be in Miami, New York, Washington, DC. You're absolutely right. And on the admissions front, I think we've also learned that we can reach prospective students in much greater ways than we could prior to the pandemic. You know, it's it's not it's not easy for someone to jump on an airplane and travel from New York or to travel from Chicago. Um, so we've become quite adept at, at creating engaging virtual opportunities, and and not only they're not only one time deals, we're able to put them on our website and. Uh, and, and individuals can view them on demand. So I think you're absolutely right about that, Linda, is it, 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 is it has allowed um, for more flexibility in, in offering events. And I will also say um, Grubhub has become a great friend of, uh, <laughs> of, of, of our administration and student body, right? Because one of, the, one of the jokes that law schools always make, and it's certainly true, is that a student can get a free lunch almost any day of the week by attending a meeting. Well, we didn't want those free lunches to go by the wayside. (laughs) That's pretty good. Now, last year saw a surge 
in applications to all law schools. We'll, we'll leave Omicron and, and COVID aside for the moment, okay? A surge in application volume. USC's median LSAT rose to 168 from 166 for the 2019 entering class. And its average GPA is now 3.82 from a 3.8 in 2019. What do you see in your crystal ball for this cycle? Um, I checked uh, application volume on Monday, which, which was January 10th, and I, on LSAC, and applica applicant volume was down roughly 5% year to date, but up almost 20%, 19.85% from two years ago. So LSAT volume also was down roughly 6%. So what are you experiencing at this point? Yes, I've been doing a lot of polishing and looking into that crystal ball. Um, okay. Lately. But but no, I think we're, we're at a point in the cycle right now, right? So we're in mid-January, uh, where if history is a guide, we're pretty close nationally to about 60% of the pool, if not slightly more, being in. And, and at Gould, kind of based on our timeline, I, I'm pretty comfortable knowing we probably have about two-thirds of our applicant pool okay. in at this point. So so I think it's it's safe to make some uh, educated, uh, maybe slightly more than educated guesses at this point about what the cycle is going to look like. So 2021 was a unicorn. I think that's the best way that I can describe that cycle. There were so many factors that came together to create a year-to-year -year increase in applications, both quantity and quality, that we had never seen, frankly, and that we may not see again anytime soon, right? So short answer, 2022, I believe, will look more like 2020, right? So off of the highs of 2021, like you established, but stronger than 2020. Um, I think nationally, you know, the trends are that that overall there will be a decline in applicants this cycle. I would suspect probably somewhere between six to 10%. You know, if I had to guess today, that's the kind of decline we're going to be looking at. And so again, I think it's important for people to keep in mind that that is off of a record setting pool right. last year. Right. Um, you know, we've also seen marginal declines in LSAT scores, but again, off of a year last year where you know, there were numbers of test takers scoring above a 170, uh, you know, a volume there that we had never seen. Um, right. So, uh, again, uh, unicorn is the best word for what I had last year. Now, interestingly, it, it Gould, so our pool is is down um, roughly in what the national pool is looking like. We, we've been consistently down about 8% this cycle, okay. mm -hmm. uh, but the quality of our pool is stronger. Um, so that's one thing that I found interesting. At all quartiles on both grade point average and LSAT, we're looking at a stronger applicant pool than we had last year. Okay. Let's turn to the application. We we kind of already started doing that. That's something that applicants can still very much influence, if not control at this point in time. USC Gold accepts both the LSAT and the GRE. Do you have any preference for one over the other? Are you finding that both tools are equally predictive of future success in law school, or do you have enough data to even make that statement? Yeah, it's, so that's a good question, and I'll try to keep the answer brief because there's some nuance to the answer that's only recently uh, become uh, apparent. Um, okay. Um, so on the data piece, at this point, we don't quite have enough data to assess how strong the correlation is between GRE scores and law school performance. We're getting there. So our current 3L class will give us uh, our first real opportunity when they graduate to do some of those correlation, to dig into that correlation. As far as do we prefer uh, one over the other? So if you had asked me this prior to November, 
um, I would have said yes. We uh, we we prefer the LSAT um, for the simple reason. So when we when we report to our accrediting body, the American Bar Association, there are specific rules about what we have to report. So they have told us if an incoming student has taken both the LSAT and the GRE, we only report the LSAT score. So that effectively required that we use the LSAT for anyone who had taken both. Um, in November, uh, at one of the ABA meetings, they revised, so they call them standard 501 and standard 503, which address standardized tests. Those standards previously specifically called out the LSAT as the only ABA kind of granted reliable and standard test. That now includes the GRE. Uh, so, uh, a lot of us are speculating that we will no longer have to treat the LSAT as the only test of record for a candidate who has taken both the LSAT and GRE. Uh, so that may give more flexibility for all intents and purposes. And, and kind of to wrap this question up, you know, my kind of my personal belief, and I know a lot of my colleagues believe that the LSAT remains a gold standard, the gold standard in admission testing and will be the predominant test, at least in the short term. There are years and years of studies that correlate LSAT performance right. to first-year law school performance. LSAC has devoted a lot of resources to partnerships with groups like the Khan Academy uh, to enable free LSAT prep. Um, so I would say, as a candidate, kind of figure out what test works best for you. Um, and also note, the GRE has math and the LSAT doesn't. For me, <laughs> math was never my strong suit. So uh, that would drive my decision. And I thought lawyers don't do math. <laughs> Just the billable hours. Oh, okay. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, roughly what percentage of your students are, are t got admitted with the GRE? Yeah, I mean, so the, so the numbers uh, with the GRE on a percent basis, we've been in the neighborhood of 2 to 3%. In, oh, so it's really small. Very small. Very small. Um, yeah. And and as far as enrolled students, um, single digits in each of our last few classes with the GRE. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're going to have I'm getting meaningful data out of the, those kinds of numbers. It's going to take take a while. It's, exactly. Right. Is full time experience uh, nice to have, or more than nice to have? Uh, almost a requirement. Not not officially a requirement, but close to a requirement. How where on the continuum does yeah. does USC fall? Yeah, certainly much more towards the nice to have side okay. of the continuum. You know, so kind of amongst, again, amongst our peer group of schools, we tend to have uh, one of the younger average ages in our incoming class. For a while, it had been 24. Um, the last two years, it's been 25. So it's gone up slightly. Uh, yeah, I mean, work experience is certainly nice to have because I think for most people, it just gives them more to talk about. And, and adds more substance to the story, right? An application is an opportunity for an individual to tell their story. And work experience, I think, gives more story to tell. You know, and, and for individuals, if there are things they want to do that aren't necessarily work, but travel, volunteering, you know, if there are commitments they need to attend to, once one starts law school, kind of that sets in motion a pretty fixed path of how at least if, if, if one follows a traditional path uh, of what the, you know, the next 20, 30 years of their life may look like. So I always say there's no better time uh, to do and experience things, um, you know, than potentially once you finish your undergraduate studies before you start law school. So, so we certainly like to see it. But then again, 
there are a good number of individuals in our first year class who are uh, what we call K to JD, right? So basically kindergarten through law school without taking a break. Got it. Got it. And do law firms like to see full-time work experience in the people they hire on the other end? You know, that I think that's a that is a good question. And I would defer mostly to to the great people in, in the career services office. But you know, anecdotally, what from what I know, in some areas, particularly individuals with STEM backgrounds who maybe have some experience in an engineering or science-based field. That can be incredibly attractive for law firms looking to add to kind of their patent, uh, their patent trained attorneys. Um, intellectual property. Intellectual yeah. property, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, I think beyond that, the good news, especially for those without work experience, at least on the big law side of things, is it's first year grades that really are going to uh, carry the most weight at the end of the day. Okay. And in terms of the type of work experience, you meant to just mentioned STEM and engineering, which is obviously very far afield from anything directly related to law. Do you have any, I mean, I was going to ask, do you like to see law to experience working in a legal office or legal clinic or something like that? But it doesn't sound like that's necessarily the best kind of experience. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't necessarily think it is. I think, right, so uh, at law school, right, we will teach you the law and, and we will teach you how to be a lawyer. And it's really hard to learn those skills before coming to law school. I, I think the one scenario where law-related experience could be really helpful, you know, is for someone who who maybe isn't quite sure if law school is for them, right? So, so not so much to learn how to be a lawyer, but to ensure that being a lawyer is something that they could see in their future, that a prospective student can see in their future. Well, one of our consultants many years ago, her, her daughter was finishing up college and wasn't sure the path that she wanted to pursue. And she was considering becoming a lawyer and she was considering something completely different. And she was feeling very pressured and stressed. And she didn't want to talk to her mother about it. So her mother introduced her to somebody else who was a law, law school admissions professional. And uh, she said, why don't you take a year and try it out, which is exactly what her mother would have told her. But anyways, so she did. She got a job at a Manhattan law firm. And after six weeks, she left. She absolutely hated it. Yep. <laughs> and that was fine. And she's, you know, went on, got a different education, pursued a different career and is perfectly happy with it. But um, that is, I think, a real value in doing something that's legally related. Yeah. And I think, I mean, in that that makes complete sense, and it really does. It aligns with what I've seen at Gould is that we have very few students who struggle academically to the point where uh, academic disqualification becomes a reality. Of the handful that I've seen that happen to in my 10 plus years at Gould, it's predominantly students who don't really know why they're in law school, right? And, and, and can't articulate um, where the passion is to become a lawyer. So you're absolutely right. And and if, if if someone does get that experience and can't stand it <laughs> and leaves after six weeks, yeah, law school is not the right path. Follow. Right. Absolutely. No. Now, a lot of times, you know, in talking to law school admissions professionals or attending conferences, talking to students, pre-law societies, the focus very much is on GPA and LSAT, or now maybe the GRE, but the, the grades and the tests. Obviously, they're important. I'm not asking you to deny that. I think it would it would be useless. But what factors other than those two numbers 
are you weighing uh, and considering as you admit students? Yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's absolutely right. I, I would not sit here and pretend to say that the numeric factors aren't important, right? As you had mentioned, film was one of my majors, so I like to use uh, the film analogy, right? And so, so what I, how I think of it is the the LSAT and the GPA they frame the review of the application, right? That kind of tells me if I were looking for a viewfinder, where do I need to zoom in? Where do I need to zoom out? Where do I need to focus, right? What's going to fill the frame? And so those numbers are incredibly useful in framing the review of an application, right? LSAT and GPA, they may lead me to ask certain questions that I will expect to be answered throughout the pages. um, Yeah, so... You know, if there's a grade point average that starts out really poorly and there's a dramatically increased tra- trajectory, I'm going to want to know why. Or if there's a particular semester, right, if it's a straight A student and they have a semester with C's and maybe a D, I want to know why, right? And as an applicant, I think self-reflexivity is so incredibly important because you can't anticipate those questions unless you take an honest look at your materials. Um, And again, one of the reasons those numeric factors are important. So as an applicant, if you can anticipate those questions that they may raise, then you use all of the other pieces of the application to paint the full picture of of that story, uh, of who you are as an individual, right? At the end of the day, you know, I'm primarily asking two questions when I'm looking at an application. Right. Number one, right, we are a professional school or an academic program. Is 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 this an applicant that appears to have the capability to, to be successful in a highly challenging program? And, mm-hmm. and that question is in many ways predicated on the LSAT and GPA, right? But that one question is not enough because we receive applications from far more applicants where we could say yes to that question than we can admit. So, right, the second question becomes. Is this someone who would add value to our community? And that's where the more subjective factors, the personal statement, the letters of recommendation, the resume, um, any addenda, that's where those factors are so incredibly important as part of the holistic review process. Sometimes we do not encourage our clients to do this, but I have seen applicants where they had that dip in in grades or they had a... uh, they started off poorly. They had a bad freshman year. And it's like their whole application is geared to justifying, explaining away, addressing that weakness. Would you recommend more that that context be provided in an an addendum and that the rest of the application be much more focused on their strengths? Absolutely. Yes. You hit the nail on the head. I think the personal statement should be a positive reflection. Uh, not the opportunity um, to make explanations. And in the addenda is absolutely the appropriate piece of the application to do that. Okay, great. Yeah, I have, since I've started, I've, I've been like, you know, you have to have the numbers, but the personal statement, the the addenda, et cetera, are, are the place where you, you, go, you go beyond the numbers and they're going to be the differentiators. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, you know, especially, you know, at law schools that receive, you know, five, six, seven thousand applications and can only seat a first year class at two to four hundred. Right. Right? There, there are a lot of individuals who check those boxes on the numbers. Yeah. And far more than you can admit. 
absolutely. Right, right. So just, you know, again, to summarize what we were just talking about, the personal statement is not the place to justify bad grades. It's not the place to repeat the resume, as you say in your question. And I'll just, the, the USC's question is, we are particularly interested in how your background, academic or otherwise, has led you to your decision to study law. This is not the place to repeat items on your resume. So it's basically why law? And I think the the sub text or the sub question might be why you? Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And okay. um, I think in many cases, right, the more open-ended personal statements like we, like we prompt are more yeah. difficult to write than a targeted, right. Than a targeted question. And yeah. no, and, and, and I think it's also very short. It is it's, say two or three paragraphs. That's very short to, to talk about. Yeah. So we ask two to three pages and we want you to uh, basically choose from your life what you want to talk about in those two to three pages. And, and I think if, if, yeah, if you're going to kind of two words, why law would be those two words. And, and here's the key though, Linda, here's why that's what we want to know, right? So what someone thinks they want to do as a lawyer may change, right? In, in all honesty, I can't tell you how many incoming students Right, come to us at USC. We're adjacent to Hollywood. They have stars in their eyes. They want to sure. practice entertainment law, right? And they end up doing something else, which is totally okay. So, right, the what may change, but hopefully the why doesn't. And I think if you can articulate the why in a personal statement, um, number one, that tells me that you've thought this out, that this is a well thought out decision, right? And number two, it tells me that when the going gets tough, and it does get tough for everyone at some point in law school, if you can remind yourself of the why, um, the oh, why sure, that, sure. that hopefully won't change, you'll be able to persevere through the tough times. Yeah, I completely agree. Just uh, reminding me of something else I've read mm -hmm. recently, but it's 100% right. Can you give some tips on how to include experiences in the personal statement without merely repeating the resume? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that is a, you know, and that can certainly be a tough skill and in, in a, in a, in a delicate line to walk, um, right? So I think at the end of the day, it, it, it comes down to if the experiences that an applicant talks about in their personal statement are supportive of the overall theme rather than the overall theme itself. I think, for example, right, if, if someone talks about you know, this tremendous desire to use the law to advocate for social justice and in the public good, right? So we hear a lot of that. And I always think it's much more effective if an applicant can give me an example of why, right? Why do you want to fight for social justice? Why do you want to fight for the public good? It's much harder to believe that if I see nothing on your resume that you've ever done any kind of community service or volunteer work. It's much more believable uh, say if you've been a court-appointed special advocate, right? You've worked in the CASA program, uh, or you have volunteered for Justice Corps, or been a fellow with the Peace Corps, right? If you can point to those things, and certainly if it's integral to who you are, then it should be in your personal statement, right? Rather than you just going paragraph by paragraph and expounding upon what's listed on the resume. But, you know, if anything, I hope uh, what I've just said, you know, makes the point effectively that the application in its entirety are all pieces to a story. And we're not looking at one piece in a vacuum from the rest of it, right? So if you're going to talk about 
wanting a career in public service, then I do expect to see somewhere else in your application that you've dedicated at least a few hours of your time to that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I've many times said that the application, including the personal statement, is like a, a jigsaw puzzle and all the pieces have to fit together. <laughs> they don't have to overlap. They got to fit together. Yeah. Yes. And if you're missing parts of the puzzle, then it doesn't look very good. <laughs> that's right. No, that's exactly right. We've touched on a addenda. What what makes for effective and ineffective addenda for addressing, let's say, an academic weakness or diversity elements? Yeah. So so as far as addenda addressing weaknesses, I actually think that can be pretty formulaic um, in order for it to be effective. So number one, it needs to be explanatory, not excusatory, um, right? And and you know. If I'm hosting an information session on the application process, I will say this, right? An effective addenda to talk about weaknesses, whether it be academic or standardized test score or even conduct related, tell us what happened, why did it happen, and what have you done to ensure it's not going to happen again, right? One, two, three, get in, get out, leave us reassured that this will not be a problem that's going to repeat again in the future. That's it. Get up. Get down. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Basically, yeah. it. Okay. That that's a great great advice. How about applicants applications from students who have an academic infraction or perhaps a criminal record, a misdemeanor of some kind? Um, is it basically the same formula? It, I mean, it is. It's a very sim. It is a very similar formula, um, right? I mean, one of my biggest pet peeves on conduct issues, especially if it's criminal conduct, is someone citing the penal code. Right. And it's like, okay, number one, right, I am going to look it up. So you just made my life a little bit harder. Right. So I'm I'm not going to be too thrilled. Uh, right. And, and if I see someone just cite a penal code and not tell me what it is, immediately I think, oh boy, this must be something really bad because they don't, they don't. So right, it, it's be transparent, right? If it's if it, if there's a conduct issue, be transparent. And you need to show genuine remorse for it. I, I mean, I think that's really key. We all make mistakes, right? I I think we'd rather be judged by how we respond to those mistakes than by making those mistakes in the first place. Um, in I've been doing this long enough to know when remorse is genuine and when someone is just sorry because they were caught, right? That, that's pretty easy. That's pretty easy to figure out. Um, you know, more serious conduct issues are certainly not a bar to gaining entry to law school, um, but with more serious conduct issues, uh, more time between the conduct in the present day certainly helps. Sure. And, and seeing that that individual right, has either been gainfully employed or involved in the community or, or right, has done something um, so that it, it gets to that recency effect in an application. Um, you want kind of your most recent current foot forward to be strongest. What about taking responsibility for the mistake? Absolutely. I think that goes, yeah, I think that goes for it's me. Foundational. Remorse and responsibility go hand in hand. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Does Gould School of Law consider update letters from applicants who have something significant to tell you after they submit their applications and before hearing back from you? Yeah. So if, if, if an applicant has not heard back, we do, we do specify that it needs to be significant, um, but we will accept an update if it is something significant. Now, we don't allow uh, updated personal statements, right? So if you've proofread it for like a 10th, and find an error that you didn't catch, you can't resubmit a written statement 
because you caught a mistake. Um, mostly where we see that is with resume, right? Awards, achievements, jobs. Um, yeah, if there's a significant new award, achievement, or job, then we certainly would like to know. Right, but not fixing a mistake on the no. previous. No. Okay. What is, other than typos and things like that, what is a common mistake that you see applicants make during the application process? And again, I'm not talking about the typo or, or something like that. Yeah, I, I think, and it's something I've touched on a, a, a little bit before, it's it's not, so it's an applicant who hasn't taken the time to assess their strengths and weaknesses for each law school that they're applying to. You know, our, our, our incoming class profile is what it is. We are an incredibly competitive law school to gain entry to. And we certainly admit applicants with numbers below our medians. But I think the common theme with those is they've shown the self-reflexivity to understand what the weaknesses are and how they can use their strengths to uh, to compensate for those weaknesses. And right, so one of the biggest mistakes, right, if, if an applicant you know, applies to us with a 3-4 or a 3-5, we certainly admit applicants with a 3-4 or a 3-5, but not those applicants who say they had a spectacular undergraduate career and finished at the top of their class, because that's right. I mean, it's just real. It's not real. Right. So, um, so I think kind of on a, on a 30,000 foot level, I think that's one of the biggest weaknesses I, I, I find in applications kind of on a, on a more specific level, it, it's not following directions. Right. And then it's, it's arguing, right? So it's asking us a question and then arguing with us when we, uh, when we <laughs> respond, right? It's like, you know, so, you know, well, there, there, did you want to be future lawyers? So I guess, <laughs> but, uh, you know, then that was, I'm like, okay, well, if you're arguing me with me about your application, what are, what are the faculty going to think about you in the, you know, in, in the right, classroom? Right, 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 so, right. A little lack of judgment there. Yeah. Um, all right. Any advice for waitlisted applicants? Yeah, I think with waitlisted, right, it, it, it's follow instructions, um, right? So I know for us, when, when an applicant's put on the waiting list, we send an electronic confirmation form asking if they'd like to remain, right? If you'd like to remain on it, respond to that immediately um, because those who don't respond aren't considered. Um, and then it's to the extent one can remain flexible on the waiting list, remain flexible. When it comes time to admit off the waiting list, I don't control when we do that. Um, generally speaking, what the law schools kind of ahead of me in the pecking order do dictates uh, when I go to my, right, when I go to my waiting list. So flexibility, patience, following instructions, staying in touch with us periodically. And we do tell applicants uh, you're welcome to periodically follow up with us, but that certainly does not mean daily or even weekly. <laughs> it it means when an update is merited. Right, right. Yeah, when an update is merited. I know uh, my my sister-in-law got into law school, I think, the week before class started or maybe even after. She was right before, from what I remember. So it can happen. It can happen. It, so that's where yeah, the patience it, comes in. Yeah. Um, what about reapplicants? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, reapplicants are not all that uncommon for us. I think the key for a reapplicant um, is to show growth, right? Again, it, it it gets towards that understanding, that self-reflexivity. If the outcome wasn't positive in a prior year, take that as a sign that you can bolster something on your application. So, I mean, the easiest way for a negative outcome if you're a reapplicant is to submit the same exact application again. Um, and that's a mistake. <laughs> That's a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a definition of insanity, actually. <laughs> um, right? Show growth. 
right? That that reapplication should should show growth. And uh, you know, if 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 someone can successfully show growth, um, you know, then certainly the outcome may be different. Do you give feedback to rejected applicants who want to reapply? We make it a policy not to give specific reasons for why a decision may have been a denial. What we will do at the end of a cycle, and you know, and we tell applicants this: um, if you if you want to talk about the process generally, we're happy to do so. Kind of once we've gotten through uh, the busy season of review. So right, so May first, June first rolls around, and again, with everyone being comfortable using Zoom these days, you don't even have to come into our office to no right, traffic to, to deal with. Yeah, no, so. Okay. No, so my team is happy to jump on Zoom and talk more strategically about the process itself. But no, we we generally won't share um, why why a denial was made. Okay, I think this interview is probably going to air. Your, your priority deadline is February one, right? Yes. Right. So this this is going to air after February one, probably February eighth, and your regular application deadline is April one. What advice do you have for applicants planning to apply this cycle, presumably by the April 1 deadline, and then for those planning to ahead to apply next year or later? I mean, does it make sense to apply after the priority deadline? Do you still accept people? So yeah, I mean, right. So we certainly we certainly will accept people after the priority deadline, right? I I wouldn't have a final April 1 deadline uh, if if I wasn't right holding out a small number of spots for students. That said, statistically speaking, the odds of being admitted if your application comes in after February 1st are very slim. I think slim to none is a fair assessment, but but they're slim. There is slim, again, because I just don't think it's ethical to accept an application if there's zero chance that that, that a seat will be offered. Part of the reason that we do that April 1 Right. This this was kind of an advent when the LSAT started being offered more than four times a year. We wanted to give a little more flexibility, right? Given the fact that the LSAT is basically offered every other month at, at this point. So, um, so for those thinking about next cycle, certainly try to meet our February first priority deadline, if not sooner. Like I still think one piece of advice um, that I was given when I was applying to law schools, I still think is true today. While there's no cutoff or no magic date, I do think that the Thanksgiving holiday remains a really good touchstone. If you want to be comfortable that you're going to be in the earlier part of the application pile by Thanksgiving, I think is a is a good uh, is a good touchstone. Keep in mind. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Sure. What would you have liked me to ask you? That's a good question. You know, one one thing. So why I still do this after. Uh, you know, after, after 15 years. Great. Good, good question. Yeah. And and so, right. I mean, and so the answer is, I think law school remains fundamental to the foundations uh, of the, of the society that we live in. Decision makers in most rooms have law degrees. And uh, as a society, those who are kind of in that room, uh, there's a, there's a long way to go right before the room of decision makers is reflective of what society as a whole looks like. And the only way to get there um, is for law schools, right? In, in law schools, not even the start of the pipeline, right? But for law schools to ensure that there's a critical mass of individuals reflective of society at large. And, and, and at least at Gould, we're very cognizant uh, of that responsibility that we have. So um, it, it's trying to help create a profession of lawyers that are more reflective of what society looks like, 
Right. And it's also the fact that getting into law school can have a life changing impact on, on so many people. You know, people who may come from less privileged backgrounds, um, you know, parents who may not have graduate or professional degrees, right? A, a legal education uh, from any law school, not just a top tier law school, but, but in particular, a legal education from Gould can certainly change the trajectory of one's life. And some of the stories that really keep me doing this are those alums of ours. Uh, who I've stayed in touch with over the years. And 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 they've told me just, yes, how not only has it changed their life, but it's changed the lives of their families and that, you know, kind of they're able to offer things that they didn't have as a child. So so that's why I still do this. It's a wonderful answer. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, Dean Kirshner, I think we're almost out of time. I want to thank you again for joining me and sharing your expertise and perspective on law school admissions in general, and specifically on USC Gold. School of Law's admissions policies. Where can listeners learn more about USC Gould? Sure. So uh, we have a lot of information available on our website. Uh, the pandemic has forced us to uh, be even more informative on our website. So that can be reached at gould.usc.edu. So we have a lot of great information there. Then kind of for more fun, interactive content, we have a very active Instagram account. Um, okay. And that is... That is at USC Gould Admissions. Um, we have student takeovers on our Instagram account. We do quizzes, trivia, uh, a lot of fun content on our Instagram account. Okay, great. I will link to that too. We're going to include links in the show notes at exceba.com slash 456 to the USC Gould School of Law website, as well as its Instagram account, um, and as well as other resources that may be helpful to listeners. Quick reminder, don't miss a law school admissions quiz. Find out if you are really ready to apply in competitive at your target schools. You can take the quiz at exhibit.com slash law dash quiz. Again, that's exhibit.com slash law dash quiz today. This is Admissions Trade Talk, produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.